This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, a conference of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Carlos Ruiz Martinez, and I'm a host of the channel. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Allison Isidore. How are you doing today, Allison? I'm doing great, Carlos. How are you? Pretty good. So today we'll be talking to Christina Van Warren, who is the VO and Elizabeth Call Figge Chair in Catholic Studies in the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Iowa. Uh, Christina Van Warren is the author of Meatpacking America, How Migration, Work, and Faith Unite and Divide the Heartland, published by University of North Carolina Press in September of 2021. It was a very recent publication. Uh, in this thoroughly researched ethnography, Christy goes into meatpacking plants, parishes, coffee shops and living rooms to tell a story that pushes back against the stereotypes commonly associated with the rural Midwest. And she shows that at the, she, shows a, she shows us a corn belt in which Protestants, Catholics, and Muslims share space every day as worshipers, employees, and employers. Christy, welcome to your books in Catholic Studies. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Carlos? Pretty good. <laughs> thanks for having me. And, and, and Allison, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is exciting. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so Christy, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your academic formation and your background? Yeah, sure, sure. So I am a longtime uh, Midwesterner. I'm from the region, Gary, Indiana. And, you know, I think of my own background in a living in a very multi-ethnic um, part of the country, um, a lot of languages and working class family and community Um in a lot of ways really shaped who I have become. And so I went to Indiana University as an undergrad and uh, studied with historians of American religion and ethnographers. I worked with Steve Stein and Bob Horsey. And they both encouraged me since I'd never really been outside of Indiana, you know, to go somewhere else for my master's and to come back for my PhD. Because I knew that I wanted to study religion by that point. I was really fascinated and, you know, just really you know, just excited about this. And so I went to um, Arizona State for my master's in religious studies. And that's really where I really became in many ways, I think, an ethnographer. So I think that's the first time I really started to become embedded with a Latino religious community and meeting uh, Estela Ruiz and her family really, I would say changed my life and not, not just my academic trajectory, but my life. And it really got me, it was really before Latino religious studies or was, was a thing or Latinx studies was really before Latinx studies. And so I think that going to Arizona state, um, was a really pivotal moment in my life and career. And that's when I really was nurtured and encouraged by, by my professors at Arizona state to really become an ethnographer. And then I went back to Indiana to work with Bob Orsi and I still got to work with Steve Stein. And then I was able to work with both Michael Jackson and Carol Greenhouse, who are amazing, amazing cultural anthropologists. Carol's at Princeton now and Michael's at Harvard. And I was just so lucky 
it was kind of like a magical moment in Indiana where like everyone was there, the stars aligned, you know, and it was before they all moved on. And so I consider myself very lucky to have been trained by both historians, PhDs in history, as well as anthropologists. And so um, I call myself an ethnographer of American religions. Um, it depends on who I'm talking to. Sometimes I'll say I'm an anthropologist of religion. Cause sometimes when you tell people you're a religious studies scholar, they, they think you're something that, that you might not be. And so a lot of times um, publicly I'll say I'm an anthropologist and that seems to resonate with people. But um, I think coming from, you know, there were immigrants on both sides of my family, Lebanese and Swedish and Polish. And I think that my long time obsession really with wanting to understand the intersectionalities. And I didn't know they were what this was called, right? That now we have intersectional, you know, theories and everything, right? Um, Kimberly Crenshaw and others, Dr. Crenshaw and others. So I've always been interested in the intersections of religion, faith, migration, and work, because I'm from a, a working family. And so I think in a lot of ways, this book for me is, is going home in a lot of ways to try to work those things out that I've always been interested in, in Iowa, my new home. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, that leads us into our next question. Um, before we get into the book itself, um, this book is comprised of interviews with, you know, refugees that you compiled over six years. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us about how you met these interviewees, what made you want to share their stories, and, you know, what did the interview process look like? Yeah, Allison, that's a great question. So, you know, I've always um, admired journalists as much as I've admired ethnographers. And so, and I find that I assign a lot of journalistic articles and, and books written by journalists in my classes. And so like a good journalist and like a good anthropologist, um, when I first came to Iowa City to teach at the University of Iowa in the fall of 2012, um, the second book on Corsios was in press. And I knew, you know, I, I love writing. I love doing research. And so I'm like, like what's the next project? And I, I always like to take my time. I always like to um, kind of literally drive around where I'm living. I like to, um, well, my Corsista's friends say bloom where I'm planted. And so I really felt called to do something on Iowa. Um, my, my current academic position is, is in part funded by lay Catholics, you know? And so I felt like I really wanted to do something that honored those Catholics who had raised money for my position, you know? And I wanted to do something. I've always been very place bound in my studies. Um, place has mattered a lot in, in not only my personal life, but my academic life. And so you know, I just spent many months driving around rural Iowa and reading, reading articles about what was going on. And what became clear to me was that in terms of Catholicism, you know, most rural, well, rural parishes have not really been studied by uh, scholars within Catholic studies recently. I think it was more of a thing in the early 20th century. And so what became clear to me is that there was a story about uh, rural parishes. Many of them are being closed and consolidated. So, you know, um, parishes are constantly being shut down and then folks from maybe three or four parishes are moved into one parish. Sometimes a new parish is built, but usually they're moved into another one. Um, and what, what also became another story is that those late 19th, early 20th century German, Czech and Irish Catholics who tend to be the dominant group and who tend to be the landowners in the state of Iowa. They have sort of political economic clout and clout within parishes. 
they are becoming much more smaller in number. They're literally dying off and they're having smaller families. But you have these new migrants coming in to, and speaking specifically about Catholic parishes, at least from the Northern Triangle. So, you know, Mexico, Guatemala, El Salvador, um, new migrants. And I refer to, as you know, from reading the book, all of my interlocutors um, really as refugees, because all of them are fleeing some form of political, economic, religious, physical violence, whether they're de facto um, uh, refugees or de jure. So I consider all these newer migrants in the last 10 years to be you know, de facto, AKA refugees. And so what became clear to me is that not only, you know, towns, the landscapes are literally being transformed by these new migrants. And there's also large numbers of Burmese migrants. They tend to be Baptist and Methodist because of missionization. Some families go to, the, to um, Catholic parishes. So I was really interested in, so this project started out being called um, Core and Belt Catholicism because I was really interested in doing a comparative study of three rural Catholic parishes. Um, and so I was conducting interviews um, before mass, after mass, at coffee shops, in parks, you know, at village inns, at local uh, eateries, sometimes in parishioners' homes. And what became clear to me, though, after, as I started conducting the interviews, is that almost every single one of my interviewees worked for a meatpacking plant. And in Columbus Junction, Iowa, which, which became my major site where I spent a lot of time and, and really embedded myself in the community, um, all work for Tyson hog processing plant. And so I knew that I needed to, you know, I think what many ethnographers, we call our method, the snowball method, right? So you, you meet some people, they introduce you to more people and literally your research snowballs. Well, you know, so too, so my site snowballed. So I started in the parish, I moved to the meatpacking plants and I basically moved where my parishioner, where the parishioner interlocutors indicated where they spent time. And it's because I um, you know, spent a lot of time with activist priests who are really committed to social justice um, and creating truly inclusive parishes, which, which is a hard thing to do. That's one of the things I write about, as you know. Um, it was one of my interlocutors, Father Joseph Sia, himself an immigrant, a Filipino priest, formerly of St. Joseph the Worker, Columbus Junction. He's now with the Diocese of Davenport. He said, you know what? you really need to go to the meatpacking plant. I'm like, you're right, but I'm a vegetarian. It's going to be really hard. So he accompanied me on my first, um, my first time in a meatpacking plant. So the, the, the project really kept growing in ways that the first two books, I kind of had them mapped out. And of course, while things snowballed, this book was like, I was constantly being surprised. And that's what I love about ethnography that, you know, that I love talking to people. I love hanging out. I've lo I love learning new things. And this book became something that I never anticipated it. And hopefully folks like it, but it, I never thought I would enter a meatpacking plant, but that's what happened, <laughs> so. And in some ways you, you, you anticipated my, my next question of which yeah. was gonna be, um, you know, the, the process of how this project that was um, originally focused on, on white and Latino Catholics in, in Iowa became something much bigger um, in, in, in scope, right? And you are a scholar, um, you're chairing Catholic studies, right? And a lot of your previous work is focused on uh, U.S. Catholicism, um, but this includes uh, uh, Protestants and, and uh, Muslim immigrants as well, or re refugees as well. Um, and so I would flip the question a little bit and, and ask, um, did, this, did this shift in scope from focusing on um, you know, white Catholics and, and Latino Catholics in Iowa and then 
turning into something much bigger. Did it in some ways, um, I guess, inform um, how you think about Catholic studies now and, and, and perhaps what like Catholic studies might look like, um, more robust and, 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 and fruitful Catholic studies might look like? Yeah, that's such a good question, Carlos. Yeah, I mean, and I think just full disclosure, as a non-Catholic who does Catholic studies, you know, so my mother was raised Catholic, uh, Polish Catholic on her side, her main name's Olkowski. My dad's side, um, Lebanese side, um, most of them are actually Catholic. They've been Maronite Christians in Lebanon, the Bekha Valley, but most are Catholic now. But my immediate paternal family was Lutheran because of my Swedish Lutheran grandmother. So as a non-Catholic coming into Catholic studies, I've always sort of straddled the sort of emic edict, insider, outsider thing. And I've always really wanted to push the boundaries of Catholic studies. And so when I was in graduate school, um, that's what was so exciting about working with Bob Orsi, you know, because he was really pushing the envelope. Then it was, let's look at popular piety. Let's actually go outside of the parishes and see what's happening, right? And see what's happening in the streets, what people are eating, what people are drinking, you know, what people are doing with their bodies, right? And I found that so um, exciting and, and liberating in a lot of ways. And so I think following an Orsi in my mentor's um, footsteps, I've always wanted to sort of liberate Catholic studies in maybe a different way of making it more comparative, right? And in some ways, I think that this book, oddly enough, is more traditionally Catholic studies than maybe my last book, was, which was really looking at Protestants who have taken over, well, not taken over, but really adopted this the originally Catholic retreat movement. But most of my interlocutors in, the, in this book were actually Catholic. And one of the things that I've been asked is, why haven't you gone to, why didn't you go to more Protestant churches? Indeed, I did not visit that many Protestant churches. Most of the time I spent was in Catholic parishes, but in talking at the meatpacking plants, and in talking outside of the meatpacking plants with meatpacking plant workers, many of the African refugees are Protestant Christian, Pentecostal, um, Assemblies of God, Pentecostal, and also Jehovah's Witnesses, and smaller number Muslims. And so absolutely, I think what I one of the many interventions I was hoping to make with this book is, you know, what can what is Catholic studies? So what exactly is Catholic studies? And um, you know, what can Catholic studies look like when we include these other players? And I think it's a qualitatively Catholic studies book in the sense that most of the folks interviewed are Catholic. I'm looking at lay Catholics, um, priests, um, but I'm also including, as you know, um, African migrants, uh, some Burmese, although the Burmese, um, if I would have had more time, I probably would have liked to embed myself more in the Burmese community. Um, but Tina Ortiz wrote a fine dissertation on Columbus Junction and the, the relationality between Latinos and Burmese. I'm really encouraging her to get her book out because she really has a lot on the Burmese. She's already done that excellent work. So yeah, I mean, I think that, that that's always a perennial question for me, Carlos, is that, you know, what exactly is Catholic studies and what does it mean to do Catholic studies as a, at a state institution? Like, so I have felt a lot of freedom teaching Catholic studies and researching Catholic studies at Iowa where I don't, unlike some of my colleagues who have Catholic studies positions, I don't have to answer to an archdiocese or to a diocese. I have a, a tremendous amount of freedom. And so, but so when I was researching this, I, I, I did feel very committed to adhering you know, very closely to these parishes. Um, but I think I am becoming more and more comparative as I go on in my, in my academic journey. And I think the next book will be even more comparative actually. So I think I would like to look at Catholics 
and Protestants and Jews actually in Gary, Indiana, where I grew up. So that's going to be the next big field site. But, um, but yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I don't know if I, I gave you the best answer, but I am all for a more inclusive, a very a more capacious Catholic studies. Yeah. Yeah, and just a quick, uh, thank you for that great answer. Just a quick clarification since I sort of inserted the term Catholic studies here, right? When I use it, and I know that that term um, can have, you know, so many different meanings to, to different people depending on the audience, right? Um, when I use Catholic studies, and especially in this conversation, I mean, it as sort of a, a very open field of study that thinks about Catholicism quite broadly, not necessarily in a confessionally committed uh, manner, which there's some, some, some good work that, that takes that approach, right? But when I use it, I, I think about like any work that thinks broadly about Catholicism in any way, big or small, central or adjacent. So I just wanted to make that clear for, for, for listeners. But Allison, you. you had a question. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more there, Carlos. Um, but Christy, you know, you've said a couple times now that, you know, this research is in rural Iowa, the, the Corn Belt, right? Um, in some ways, this might lead us to think that this is a highly specific regional story, you know? Uh, but you make the case that this is a story that can be understood as, in the global scope as well. Um, can you elaborate on how the fine-grained stories you tell in Meatpacking America uh, tell us about a broader global structure and structures? Yeah. Allison, that's such a great question. And I think I probably would not have made such a big claim in my first book. This is the third big ethnography. So I felt like now I think I should be able to make a big claim, right? And so I've always been more very comfortable with micro histories, micro ethnographies, right? Really doing a deep dive, fine grained dive, as you mentioned. So, you know, as you know, for me in the book, every chapter starts with a vignette from an interlocutor I spent quite a bit of time with. Um, and it, it's, it's so important for me to root the story that a bigger, whatever story I'm trying to tell a bigger story to root it in the stories from my interlocutors. They're the core, uh, of, of the book. And my job is trying to amplify their stories and trying to make sense. And you're right. I mean, I was, I was more ambitious in this book, I think in previous books, in the sense that I'm saying it's not just a local, uh, it, yes, it's about Iowa, but when we, when we compare Iowa to surrounding Midwestern states, Corn Belt states, Wheat Belt states, these states tend to be secondary destination. They're, they're not, they're not, they're rarely the primary destination for migrants, refugees, right? They're secondary. Refugees, migrants are coming here to work and where they're coming to work is for big ag or some, some segment of big ag, in this case, meat packing, right? The meat that's being, uh, the animals that are being uh, killed, um, so raised, killed, harvested, and packaged, not, it's a lot, many more people than Iowans are eating that meat. Everyone in the, around the United States, if you eat meat, there's a, a huge chance that it's from a Midwestern meatpacking plant and taking that next step, there are global elements. And so the Tyson plant and the Iowa premium beef plant, where I did field work, the, the packaged meat was going to China, Japan, Brazil, it was going all over the world. And I was able to see it. Um, as it was packaged and just the different uh, storage places, I was able to see this, how it was stamped and where it was going. And so I think that I love Elizabeth Cohen's work so much. She's a wonderful historian. And I think one of the things that's really stuck with me about her work 
is that the very best stories attend to the local, the national, and the global. And I really tried to do that in this book. And, and you know, it, that was a hard thing for me to do. I'm like, okay, this is like a big thing here that I'm making these big claims. But I think that the data is there, right? I mean, you've got... Um, You've got uh, folks from all over the world working in these meatpacking plants, right? And um, I spent a lot of time in the book, as you know, historicizing the meatpacking industry, right? And so how it was deunionized and moved out and deurbanized, right? Moved out of places like Cincinnati and Chicago, um, you know, in the mid 20th century, moved over intentionally and deunionized. The unions were really gutted, moved into rural hamlets throughout the Midwest, you know, in places like Columbus Junction, places like um, Washington, Iowa, Tama, Iowa, and, um, you know, Fort Dodge, Ottumwa, Marshalltown, right? Um, And so so we have deunionization, deregulation. Um, We also have remnants of the farm crisis of the 1980s. So we have a lingering economic depression, right? And so we have um, immigrants coming in, refugees coming into work, producing a product that's being eaten, consumed globally, right? That's bringing a lot of money into this, into these states, but also that's really polluting these states too. And so I try to really attend to the dynamics, those intersections of the local, the national, and the global throughout the book. Um, so yeah, this was a more ambitious book. Um, I hope that the reader came away that, 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 there, that indeed this book is rooted in Iowa, the Hawkeye State. But I think... Um, what these refugees are saying and doing um, resonates throughout the Midwest and on a national and global scale. I have a question about the, some of the economic um, changes in, in the state of Iowa. So in chapter two, you discuss how Iowa's economy transitioned from being one dominated by uh, family farms, right, um, to one dominated by concentrated animal feeding operations, uh, CAFOs. Um, and, and and big meat packing industry. Can you talk about a little bit about those um, economic changes and, and how that changed from you know family farms to big meat packing industry came about? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a great question. And you know, I'm, and again, that was a whole other area. I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't you know like farming history and like there there, there was like a huge learning curve. For, you know, really in writing this book, I had to really you know, really do a lot of learning and talk to a lot of different people about this. Absolutely. So as you know, Carlos, I mean, I start with um, Corinne Hargraffen's story um, and I start with, you know, the homemaking chapter. And so, you know, indeed, you know, the earlier migrants from late 19th, early 20th century had small farms. Oftentimes they, they, you know, they rented, but they were able to buy these farms. But then after the economic collapse, you know, and then we had NAFTA, you know, uh, in the 80s, we had an economic collapse. Farmers lost, you know, they, they literally sold their land and their equipment to, to big ag, to bigger companies. So you have what, what used to be small farms, smaller farms that were passed down generationally. I mean, you still have heritage farms in the state of Iowa, but the majority of farms are owned by a very small number of people, which is the same thing that we see going on with, um, with the meatpacking plants. You have the big four, the big five. And so I, I, I use the term uh, sort of a new gilded age in the book. You know, I think what we saw um, you know, early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, where we saw like, a, you know, economic, a dominance 
by few companies. I think we're very much seeing that today with Smithfield, Tyson, um, JBS, Monsanto, you know, very few companies own seeds, you know, Cargill, um, very few companies own meat. And I try to make that connection too, whereas farmers used to have more autonomy, they used to, you know, have more say in setting prices with corn and beans. I mean, farmers today, independent, smaller farmers, much like meatpacking plant workers today, are fungible commodities. They're seen as disposable, just like the very animals that they raise if they're farmers or that they kill if they're processors. And so I try to make connections throughout the book between the workers, mostly the meatpacking plant workers, and how they're seen as disposable, fungible commodities again, much like the animals that are bred for a particular purpose for slaughter. So yeah, I mean, we, I mean, the 1980s, I mean, I, I grew up in the 80s. So in a lot of ways, I'm, I was really remembering, you know, I was, I was just like 10 years old at the time. So as I was doing the research for this, I was like, oh my gosh, I remember reading about this. Or I remember my parents talking about this over coffee on a Sunday about all oh, those poor farmers in Iowa, you know, another farmer committed suicide. And so this really helped me understand like just the devastation for, for, for farmers and, you know, Bob Withnow, famous sociologist, um, he's written about this in um, in a couple of his books, how farmers will say it's in the blood, like you just can't get away from it. And that was just such a poignant part of doing this research that I interviewed several white men whose families had lost their farms. And so these men, like it was like their grandfathers or their fathers who had lost the farms. And so these men worked for a corporation and on the side, as a side hustle, they would literally farm land for mostly white women, widows who inherited farms for their husband. And so there's this fascinating cycle of like family members who are trying to on the side as their second job, you know, farm to make some extra money so they can actually repurchase land that was lost in their families. And so there's a lot of heartache. There's a lot of like, um, there's a lot of sadness, much like there's sadness over parish closings that I write about. I don't really write about this in the book, but so too, is there, there a deep sadness about losing land? And there's, there's really what I would call like a reclamation movement. Maybe it's not a movement so much as it is an affect or a sentiment on the part of a lot of um, these men, mostly white men who are trying to reclaim and buy back the land. So it's really powerful. Awesome. And so along with these uh, economic um, changes that, that are uh, shaping, um, you know, what rural Iowa uh, looks like in, in, in the rural Iowa economy, there are also demographic changes, right, that are um, parallel, but maybe not parallel, maybe like, you know, directly related. Um, can you tell us a little bit about those demographic changes in, in, in rural Iowa? That, and these changes really push back against um, our stereotypes of, of, of rural Iowa, right? So I'm interested uh, in yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... You know, again, I like love so many, I love journalistic writing because I think it's sometimes it's so clear and compelling, but what, what I grew very weary of, and maybe this is just like, because I'm a lifelong Midwestern and I hate how the Midwest has been portrayed. You know, we're nice, but we're like backwards. We're really white. We're not woke, you know, and that states like Iowa are literally flyover states. You just go over it to get to something more interesting, right? And more woke and more profound, right? And so like, Maybe I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. I've thought about this a little bit, but um, indeed, I'm trying to write. I'm trying to push back on tropes. Tropes about, you know, everyone in Iowa or most people are um, reactionary, right wing, evangelical Christian, gun toting, Trump voting, 
hateful people. And there's, there's some truth there. I mean, right. I, I'm not dismissing this. I mean, there's evidence for that. Um, but based on my research, um, you know, going to the meatpacking plants and going to towns where meatpacking plants are located are really dynamic, multiracial, multi-ethnic places, right? Um, Art Cullen, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and I was so happy when he blurbed the book. He, he wrote the book Storm Lake, and there's a documentary out now. I really like Art Cullen's work too, because he he's a lifelong Iowan. And he writes this too. He's like, you know, it's a lot more complicated than, than what we see in the hot takes in journalism, right? And so I intended for this book to be what I guess what I would call a cold take. Let's step back after my after me doing this like sort of in-depth research for a bit over six years. This is what I've learned. And I've also learned that, you know, so so you go in a meatpacking plant and English is, is like a minority language. You know, there are like multiple languages being spoken, um, Lingala, Swahili, um, Spanish, Kanjobal, um, just you name it, Vietnamese, Burmese. Like when you go to Tyson, it w- I'll, I'll never forget. This. I wasn't allowed to take any photos and I was there at either of the meatpacking plants. And I, so I have a mental snapshot but I remember walking from the intake building when I got my, my tags and everything. And I got, you know, bagged to put my clothes in and things like that. And to, before I suited up, um, I remember just walking by all the signs and it said, welcome in like a variety of languages. And there were like 25 different signs. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is fascinating. And on the hard hats of the shift of the line supervisors, um, you can really rise up in the ranks if you, if you're multilingual. And so I remember seeing on the hard hat on the helmets, it would say what language the line supervisor uh, would speak. And there were so many different languages. And again, I'm like, whoa, here's a story. Nobody's really talking about this, you know? Um, And so I think right now, if, if we, if we go back to academia too, I think that it's not a popular thing right now to write books that have a nuanced argument. And I have to say, I was really nervous when I was writing this because I'm really asking the reader to consider a white man in Iowa who voted for Trump as a possibly reasonable interlocutor, right? When we have certain ideas about men like that, right? And so I'm really asking the reader to stay with me. Trust me, I've done this research. It's a complicated story. I'm not asking you to say, to, to think that there's not racism, but it's really complicated. And I wanna give you a sense of how complicated and messy things are in, in states like Iowa and in these rural spaces where if you didn't have the meatpacking plant, if you didn't have these refugee workers from all over the world, the town would die. I mean, these are the lifebloods. I mean, I was thinking about um, Alisa Maldonado Estrada's beautiful book, Life Blood of the Parish. I'm like, these plants are like the lifeblood of the community, you know, to sort of borrow and appropriate her. I mean, it, it's astounding, right? And so I want to just, just push back on these tropes and say, stay with me. Trust me. I've been here. I've done the homework. Um and maybe when you're done reading the book, you'll have a more informed, more nuanced understanding of white working class America as much as the reader would have of, of refugees um, in, in the Midwest. At Midwest, the Midwest is actually host. Uh, there are many sites for, for new refugees, not just urban areas. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that kind of just weaves into our next question kind of perfectly. Um, in chapter six, it's aptly titled In the Belly of the Beast. You write about your aim in that chapter uh, is to show the reader what a 
day in the meatpacking plant is like. Um, you talked a little bit uh, about walking in and seeing all the signs just now, um, but you know, how did you get access to conducting this research at the meatpacking plant? What what is it like to work there? Yeah, so um, you know. Yes, and I'm really glad you asked that question, Allison. So there have been some really great anthropologies of meatpacking plants written. Um, the most recent one, I think, is um, Timothy Pascherat's um, Porkopolis, which is a really great book. And he worked inside many facets, including CAFOs. But what most anthropologists have done that I decided I didn't want to do is that they sort of go undercover or they, they apply under a different name. I wanted to be very, I, I'm a very open, transparent person. And so I really want my research methodology, methodology, how I conduct myself um, anywhere to really resonate with how I live the rest of my life. And so I, you know, I had to, the, the vetting at Tyson wasn't as hard because Dave Duncan was a, who was the, the human resource manager at the time was good friends with father Joseph Sia, who was the activist priest I'd been spending a lot of time with. And so I was able to go there a few times. I mean, I was able to spend a significant amount of time there and he, I had a lot of access um, because he trusted father Joseph. And it was because I had that experience at Tyson that I, I just kind of cold, I guess in the past it would have been cold called. I cold emailed IPB uh, and I reached out. It was Michelle Baumhover, who's the um, marketing person there, which is kind of interesting kind of said who I was, Midwesterner researchers. I really want to understand me packing. I've been here. And she said, I want you to drive out for, uh, for an interview. Like they interviewed me. And so I had an initial interview there where I actually didn't go through the plant. I just was in sort of the human resources part. And she's like, all right. And I think I passed. So I passed the first test. And then I went back to the board, the board of directors. And I had to give my pitch on uh, like what I wanted to do in the book, why I wanted access, and um, I tried to be really open and honest saying, you know, there's a lot that's been written about me packing plants. Most of it's negative. Um, I'm going in just really objective. I just really want to get an understanding, like literally what happens in a meatpacking plant. And I'd like to have access to talk to refugee, refugees. I've been talking with, you know, many, many. So I had conducted many interviews. By the time I, I had the, the interviews, I had, I had done probably close to 100 interviews. So I'd done a lot of interviews already, meatpacking pe meat plant workers outside of the plant. And, um, you know, I basically identified myself, identified myself as a, a Midwesterner, as a mom, as someone who buys meat for my kids. I want to have a better understanding. And that really resonated with them. And I have to say, you know, I, I tend to be a very friendly, forthright person. I think my whiteness maybe helped me. I'm not so sure. I want to be very self-reflexive about this. Being a university professor did not help me. Um, they're like, oh, Iowa City, bunch of a bunch of liberals over there. I mean, it was pretty clear to me that our political persuasions were very different. And I said, yeah, you know, it is a very progressive place. And, and I said, and it's really important for me when I come in to really portray things as they are. And they really liked that. They wanted me to tell what they called. We want you to get a story out there of what goes on. Um, and I said, that's exactly what I want to do as an anthropologist. Um, the, the oral agreement would be that I would share the chapters that I wrote about them and I shared them. They didn't have any issues with it. They gave me their, I guess, verbal blessing to go ahead with the publication. I did have to sign non-disclosure forms at both plants, but that applied to not, not saying that I couldn't publish it, but that I couldn't, um, they were, <laughs> this is kind of funny, not funny, but they didn't want me to give away any trade secrets of the machinery. They were very, um, they didn't, you know, they didn't want me to write about what new machines they were using or like, 
to tell certain de details about the production. And so um, that's what they were mostly concerned about. But yeah, I mean, I had a lot of access. I mean, I, I was able to, I don't have any on with me, but you know, those little field note notebooks, they say field notes on them. I mean, I have hundreds of those and I was able to, you know, have those in my pocket. Um, they're really small. I had pens, you know, and most of them are like blood splattered. I have you know, liquids on them from, you know, from the visit. I wasn't allowed to take pictures, but I had amazing access where I, I asked, I was able to ask any questions. I would show up at 5 a.m. at the plant all week. I went through the new hire. So I, I basically um, took the, so I, I had several visits before I took the new hire orientation. So all told, I probably spent two weeks intensive total when you add up all the different visits and then um, the new orientation. So I did have a tremendous amount of access and I was able to be in what they call the hot box. So I was able to actually see where the animals are killed, which usually isn't allowed. So, yeah. So when you actually go to the meatpacking plants, um, you, you see what you refer and write about as quote, religion of real life. Um, and I'm really interested in, in this, in this phrase, can you elaborate on what you mean by religion of real life? And um, what does that look like in the meatpacking plants and how does that uh, religion of real life, uh, how's it different or maybe not so different from what we often think religion is? Um, yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, hopefully I know what I meant when I wrote that. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go back. Well, I'm going to try to get at your question from this way. So there, you know, there's so many great books. Let me, let me start with Catholic studies. We have a lot of wonderful books that are about parish and place, right? We know like beautiful stories of, you know, from so many historians and Catholic studies, you know, including Orsi, John McGreevy, um, so many others, um, the, about, about what religion looks like on the streets, in the parishes, you know, Maldonado Estrada's beautiful book, right? In the streets with the Giglio, you know, um, we have amazing books. I would say that's religion in real life. How is religion lived not only in places that we consider qua religious, but in places like streets, um, cafes, sporting arenas, right? Um, meat packing plants. And so, you know, if I think about the homilies and, and all the things I've been hearing over the last several years and the, the various parishes I was, you know, visiting, a lot of it was about changing communities, learning to get along, you know, because these parishes are all changing dynamic places. Now they're no longer white, they're brown spaces. And so I'd been hearing homilies from various priests about how, how communities were changing, parishes were changing, you know, and also, you know, like this is where the rubber hits the road, you know, as Father Joseph Sia once said in a homily, um, we have to walk the talk, we have to show that we're an inclusive loving community and walking in Christ's footsteps. Um, I was also, I've, I also thought about like how suffering is such a big part of like Catholic theology. Right. And so like in these plants, you have all kinds of suffering, you know, you have the suffering of the animals, no matter how well they're taken care of, they're killed. You have suffering of the workers, right? They have, there's a high rate of injuries in these places. The lion speed keeps speeding up. Um, these are really, really dangerous places, even though like hygiene has vastly improved. I mean, I wouldn't say this is not Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. You know, everything that the, that the protagonist Jurgis, you know, described, I didn't see that in the plan. I wanted the reader to know that these are like pretty hygienic places. I mean, like the, the how, you know, and so I wanted, I wanted to bring the reader into a world where if you've got it, if you've got beliefs and affects and feelings about God, la Virgen, the saints, right? And you, you've, 
and you, you're learning about God watching over you and you're learning about how the saints are protecting you and you can go to your patron saints and you go into a violent and bloody place like this, it's very precarious and you're already living a precarious life. Maybe you're undocumented, maybe you're documented and you have undocumented family, family members at home and you enter this place that's, you know, there are bodies and blood and eyeballs and all the awful, all these things, as many of my interlocutors told me, you know, you start thinking about, you start praying in your mind, you start thinking about, okay, God's here to protect me. I'm going to get through the day. I'm here to make money for my family. You know, it's almost like becomes a mantra, right? And so I've been thinking a lot about religion and work and faith at work. And there's a lot of great scholars right now writing about this. A lot of sociologists writing about faith at work, like Elaine Howard Eklund at Rice. She's got this big team of folks in sociology doing faith at work, FAW work. And so I've just been really intrigued by, you know, most Americans spend the vast majority of their waking hours at work. Okay. So if someone has a religious theological dispositionality, they're not just going to leave it at the door when they walk in, they're going to bring it in with them. And, and what I heard from my interlocutors, those I interviewed before I went in the meatpacking plant, those I interviewed in the meatpacking plant, and those I interviewed after that particular experience confirm that, you know, that they drew on their religion. It was a resource, their faith. They, they would say quiet prayers to themselves and they were on the line. They would touch their scapula to remind themselves that they were going to get through the day. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what I meant by religion in real life. It's just like, let's apply religion to other places than places that we qualitatively, normatively think as religious places, if that makes sense. So, <laughs> Yeah, of course. And now I want to talk about uh, Catholics a little bit more intentionally. Um, so, you know, there are all these economic and demographic uh, shifts happening in, in rural Iowa that you uh, vividly describe in the book. Um, and, and of course, you know, this leads to uh, tensions in, 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 in small towns. And these tensions um, also sort of spill over into uh, Catholic parishes, right? Um, par some, you know, previously white care parishes were are closing and and now uh, people are sharing parishes and and and, and their attentions right and uh, it, it often falls on on priests on these parish priests to uh, if not resolve then like navigate these tensions and conflicts and you, you write about Father Sia Father Joseph Father Greg um, who you see as these priests who are, are, are working to create inclusive uh, parishes right and, and navigate all of these yeah. Can, you, can you tell us a little bit about the context that these uh, priests find themselves in and, and what are some of the challenges that they face? What are they doing? Yeah, 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 that's such a great question. Well, and I always go back to Father Joseph Sia saying that he feels like he's had, he had a schizophrenic ministry. And he said, I don't say that, put that lightly. He said he's always having to do a balancing act, as he would put it, between keeping the minority white parishioners, the one who had the ones who had the money, you know, quite honestly. So the English language mass in most of these rural parishes, the numbers are dwindling because folks are dying off and um, their children oftentimes and their grandchildren don't live in that town anymore. They moved off. And so the white Catholic community is, is literally dying off, but the Spanish speaking mass community is bursting at the seams in these parishes, right? And so there's tensions about, you know, really ownership, right? And so I, I use, uh, I think I, yes, I include a vignette in the book. I'll, I'll never forget, I was 
downstairs after the English language mass, having coffee and probably some kind of delicious coffee cake. I gained like 10 pounds during this field work that I think I finally shed. I ate a lot of coffee cake and just ate a lot of amazing carbs during this research, but I was having coffee and like some pastry with these just lovely white Catholic ladies I've gotten to know. And I had gotten to know them and their families and their challenges. And one of my Latina interlocutor friends came down and we hugged and we, I just switched over in Spanish and she had brought some things down for after the Spanish language mass, um, you know, for coffee and serving food. And it got completely silent downstairs and all the ladies I'd been talking to stopped because they don't know if they had heard me speak Spanish before. And they just kind of stared. And then when my friend went upstairs, they just looked at me and I said, what? And I said, oh, do you want to know what we were saying? And so it's the real problem is that Spanish speaking Christians are really wanting to learn English and are picking it up at work, but very few white English speaking mass goers want to, some of them want to learn, but most of them don't. And so I think the monoling, what really struck me hard in that moment was like, wow, these are two different groups occupying the same space but rarely really mingling. I mean, every time I would go to the Dia de Guadalupe celebration, whether, you know, West Liberty is much more integrated, but Columbus Junction, not as much. It was a sea of brown. And then me and my blonde haired son would be there. You know, it's like, hi, Christy, hi, Declan, Christina, you know? So, I mean, these are, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of work to be done. And Father Joseph was just really exhausted. He said, you know, I feel like I, I have to really tread a fine line, you know, cause I, you know, I want to keep both groups happy and I want to bring folks together. So he would regularly encourage uh, folks to, to attend each other's masses, but I would say with limited success. Now there's a new parish priest there, Father Trevino, who I've talked with on a few occasions. And I think that Padre Trevino is having a bit more success maybe because he's also Mexicano, Father Joseph's Filipino. And so I'm, I'm, I'll be really curious to see, um, in the next couple of years, the work that Father Trevino is able to do. And he's also at West Liberty now. So he he's there full time and he's there in Columbus Junction on Sundays. But I think it's very difficult. All the priests that I interviewed, um, you know, Father Joseph's new position with the diocese, he took it because he's in charge of training Spanish speaking ministers. So really diversifying the ministry and, and he's doing a great job. And so my hope is that we'll have more native speakers, more Spanish speaking priests and even African priests um, throughout Iowa to really match up with the changing demographics. But I think, yeah, I mean, again, it's complicated because these white Catholics know that if it weren't for these newcomers, their town would be, would be, it, it was dying before they came in. And so they appreciate that they're there. They appreciate the economic presence, but, but they're also resentful. And so again, there's just all kinds of mixed fraught feelings going on. And I think it was really important to be honest with that. Like we can say, we can write about shared parishes, but wow, to have a shared parish is a really difficult thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that I, I really love about this book, and I think that characterizes you as a scholar and an ethnographer, is your, you know, fine-grained attention to detail and the fact that the relationships that you have formed with uh, your interviewees, you know, as you're just talking about, uh, really comes through in your writing. And one of the people that you write about uh, in the conclusion of your book is uh, uh, Raina. Yeah. Can you tell us 
a little bit about Raina's story and how it highlights some of the main claims you're making in Meatpacking America? Yeah, well, good news about Reina is she has been reunited with her husband and they are expecting another child. So she is really happy. They have a bigger apartment. Um, she um, has gotten more hours at work and um, things are going well. And actually one of her sons is in my daughter's class. So I keep, you know, I talk to them quite often. So, yeah. So um, I wanted to end with Reina because, you know, her story she's another part of the meatpacking industry, right? She works at McDonald's, you know, she's never worked in a meatpacking plant, but she's on the other end, right? Part of the whole conglomerate. So, and every, pretty much everybody who's in this book, you know, um, either grows corn, harvests corn, you know, raises cattle is some, some part of the broadband, big ag meatpacking business. And I wanted to include her because, um, there's a growing Guatemalan population in the Midwest. And there have been a couple good books written about Guatemalans, but not much has been written about Guatemalans. And we know a bit about Guatemalans because of the Postville, um, 2008 Postville ice raid, which is the still remains the single largest ice raid in, in the United States. You know, there were like almost 500 Guatemalan, mostly men and women deported. It was just really ripped the community apart and Postville is still, is still recovering. And so I felt like it was really important because I'd gotten to know Arena and that's not her whole name um, over the course of several years. And I had actually, so it, ending with her was very personal because I'd gotten to know her family very well. I had um, given them a lot of rides to places, to lawyers, to the store. And so I, I wanted to give a sense of like, you know, none of the people I interviewed really wanted to leave home. You know, they loved their home and she remembers the mountains and she remembers just how beautiful her community was, but she was impoverished and they, she felt like they just literally didn't have a choice when you're resorting to finding cardamom pods on the side of the road to sell, you know, and you're grinding up corn husks and mixing it with water and salt to eat, that's not much of an existence. And so I wanted to give a sense that, you know, no one wanted to leave their home. They, they had to leave. And I think with ending with Reina was a really good way and starting the book with Rosa's story, um, how, you know, she and her husband wanted a better life for their infant daughter. And she and her infant um, took a very arduous long journey to, to meet up with him. And so I just um, wanted to give a sense too that, you know, these places, the places where these refugees from are, were, were beautiful places too, you know, and many of them have become war-torn and economically depressed. But I also wanted to give a sense because I think much of Catholic studies has also been very American-centric in particular ways. And, you know, my Spanish is good enough for interviews. It's not good enough to really write. I would never be able to write a book in Spanish. And I don't think it's strong enough where I could go to Mexico and really do like a deep archival work there. But one of the things that I would love to see happen in Catholic studies is more, you know, transnational work done. When we're talking about American Catholicism, okay, let's go into Canada. Let's go into, you know, South and Central America as well. I think that that's really where, where we need to go. Um, and so I wanted to end with her and, um, to also show what one of the other interventions I really wanted to offer was 
you know, we hear so much about a particular kind of Christianity in America. We hear a, a particular kind of white evangelical pro-Trump, you know, um, um, what Kristen Kobe's Dumas beautifully writes about in Jesus and John Wayne. We hear a lot about those, those Christians. And, and I think, I think what we're not hearing enough about is more moderate or left-leaning Christians and all of the amazing work of, of stewardship and social justice work. And I've met so many of these folks in the course of my research. So I've worked closely with our local Catholic worker house um, co-founders, you know, um, Emily and David, who are the ones who originally introduced me to Reina actually because of the work that I've done um, with the Catholic worker house, my friends there. And so um, I wanted to end too by saying, you know, things are working out for her, but it's been hard, but damn, she really misses her home. And this is like, She's making the United States her home, but will it ever be her home? You know, and I just really wanted the reader to really, really process that, you know, and also, wow, there's a lot of really, there's a lot of Christians out there who are taking the gospel really seriously and who are reading the new Testament and who, when they think about what it means to be Christian Catholic, um, it looks very different from a lot of the Christians we see in the news these days. And so again, I'm pushing back on tropes. One of the things that gives me a lot of hope is there's just, there's a lot of grassroots movements. In fact, I was just talking with David Goodner the other day, we spoke in a, in a university, we spoke at an, uh, a class together the other day, you know, and he's helping Tyson workers organize. Maybe we'll see a union, you know? And so, I mean, I'm trying to keep tabs on what's going on now, but there's a lot of people and a lot of white Iowans who are really invested in making this a more just place for refugees. And so I wanted to end on a hopeful note, not because this is Christy wanting to see a hopeful thing, because like I, there's a part of me, I, I do, you know, but it's actually there, I think. And I think that Maybe it's because of COVID, maybe because we're all just so beaten down, it's harder to see that. So I want the reader to take off the stress from COVID and everything, and just to really see that, you know, there really are pockets of hope. And um, I think that there's hope, a lot of hope for these rural Catholic places and for the Catholic church. I think we can maybe truly have inclusive spaces, but I think a lot of work needs to be done, you know, but I, th I think we can get there, so. Thank you, Christy. And we've taken up a lot of your time. So just one uh, final quick question okay. to wrap up. Is there anything, and maybe this is a terrible time to ask this question because you just <laughs> finished this book, um, but is there anything, any lingering questions that like you're pursuing from back in America or <laughs> any projects that are coming down the pipeline for you on that? Yeah, well, you know, I just, I can't get away. I'm just always thinking, I just love to do research and writing so much. I mean, it's like my research addiction, I call it sort of half jokingly, but yeah, I mean, I, because I was talking with David Goodner the other day, I, I don't, and I don't think everything has to be a book, you know, I think I'd love to get maybe a couple op-eds out or a couple short articles, maybe some op-eds. Cause I'm as, as Carlos, you know, I think it's really important for grad students to write op-eds. We're doing it in class. I think, so I, I'm thinking about maybe a couple op-eds about like follow-ups to the book, you know, on what's going on with Tyson now and the Catholic church. And what really excites me 
is that um, I'm sure, you know, Felipe Hinojosa's wonderful work in his new book, Apostles of Change, you know, how churches have been historically spaces of union, labor, organizing, and protest. And um, so too, this is happening now in rural Iowa churches. So the two places where I did field work, West Liberty, St. Joseph, and Columbus Junction, St. Joseph, are becoming sites where Tyson workers are meeting and starting to organize. And so I think I'd really like to follow up the book and just show that, look, look what's happening when you get folks um, on the on the ground really doing this kind of work of accompaniment, right? To use like sort of Catholic theological language. So those are kind of two short pieces I'm thinking about. I have a couple articles coming out that are in the works that are in press right now. But I think as far as the book goes, I think I briefly mentioned it earlier. I think it's time for me to go home to Gary. And I think I want to circle back and I want to look at migration, faith, and work in Gary. And I want it to be not so much like Meatpacking America and Gary, but um, this is going to be a very personal book for me because that's where I'm from. That's where my, most of my family still lives in Gary, the surrounding area. And I want to do a deep dive into work in the steel mills, um, pick up a bit on, on Heath Carter's really great book, you know, Union Made. Um, it's still very much a union. Um, Gary and Dan is still very pro-union. And so I think I want to write kind of like a part memoir, part ethnography, part history, kind of a hybrid methodological approach to where I'm from. And like, because that's really what, where my lifelong, all my interests, my curiosity started, you know, so like, I couldn't wait to get out of there, but now I almost can't wait to go back and to revisit it, you know? So that's the next big project for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us yeah. uh, for new thank books and Catholic studies. We really enjoyed the conversation. This has been great. I feel like, gosh, you just, uh, you ask great questions and you, um, I just really appreciate the time you took on it. I know you're both really busy. So thanks so much. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Carlos. Thanks, Allison. <laughs>